The Energy Gang is brought to you by Fluence. Fluence is championing energy storage as the cornerstone of the zero-carbon electric future. Fluence has been a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services since 2008, when it commercialized the first grid-connected battery systems, and it's now developing multi-gigawatt fleets around the globe. Learn more at fluenceenergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by NorCal Controls. NorCal helps you maintain, expand, and scale your solar systems anytime, anywhere with confidence. It's a total controls and monitoring solution provider for solar power plants. NorCal supports every phase of project development, from turnkey design solutions to post-OEM enhancements, troubleshooting, and training. NorCal goes beyond the vendor mentality to partner with you in building solutions that are flexible, scalable, and completely customized to your current and future needs. Visit NorCalControls.net to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. We are 70 days away from America's presidential election, and that means we are 70 days away from one of the most consequential political moments ever for the planet. Joe Biden put climate and clean tech jobs at the top of his priorities in last week's nomination speech. His VP pick, Kamala Harris, says she'll use her background as a prosecutor to hold industries accountable for climate change, and climate donors are pouring millions into their campaign. Meanwhile, Trump is in Pennsylvania telling oil and gas workers that Biden is going to end their way of life, and who knows what he'll say during nightly speeches during this week's Republican convention. We're going to start with a political roundup. Then a story about what's at stake in the election— More details emerge about Trump administration's censorship of clean energy research. What is the SEAMS study and what happened to it? Finally, we'll take some questions from listeners. And those questions are coming in because we are live once again for the third time since this pandemic began. We got hundreds of people hanging out with us as we record. So hello to everyone out there. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to be with us. And that us is our regular cast of characters. It's Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's back from a three-week vacation. Hello, Catherine. Great to have you back. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. And thanks so much to Melissa Lott for doing that and really taking one for the team. I completely appreciated those three weeks. You have uh, a new piece of art behind you. What am I seeing? Is that the Muppets? Yeah, for alert attendees, the first live show I put a national park. Uh, The second live show, put the Nats World Series, and this is the Muppet Show. So, you know, just want to mix it up a little bit. I love it. How delightful. (laughs) Shake the dust off that microphone. Did you have to like pull it out of its case and and, and shake the dust off? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I had to like figure out how to do it all again. But it's, uh, it was really fun to actually listen to you guys listen to the show without having to listen to my own voice. Very (laughs) enjoyable. And you still wanted to yell at your headphones too, apparently. Well, of course, of course. I'm like, policy, policy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if we've gone three weeks since we started the show not talking to each other. So I know. Chigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He's there in Maryland back in his son's room. What did you miss the most about Catherine Jigger? It's all of the knowledge that she imparted on me, right? Like, I mean, it's just like, (laughs) it's so much awesome stuff. And I always loved hearing about her family. Because I love them so much. 
That's very kind. See, you come for the spice, but you stay for the wonk. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with a look at the presidential race now. So we're three months away from the 2020 election. Biden is polling well ahead of Trump by a historically wide margin. But this late summer period always brings a lot of swings in public opinion. The Democratic convention just wrapped up. Biden got a bump from that in his choice of Kamala Harris as his running mate. And who knows what's going to happen during Trump's convention this week. So this is always kind of a weird time. Now, we are not election pundits, but we sure do know something about climate and how it's playing into politics. And so do voters, apparently, because there was this massive new survey just released from Resources for the Future showing 25 percent of Americans see climate change as a top priority. Uh, like a, a like fundamentally a top priority. And that's just under abortion and seven percentage points higher than gun control. So that's really noteworthy because of the pandemic, because of the protests in the streets, because of the economic collapse. It shows that climate really isn't being dogged by this finite pool of worry. Um, so you imagine that if we have all these catastrophes happening at once, people would just drop climate down the list, but that is not what's happening. So let's take a look at where it's fitting into the last stretch of the 2020 election. Catherine, um, how did Democrats frame the issue during their convention? Was it any different from uh, previous election cycles? Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. It was completely part and parcel of the entire platform that Biden is putting forward. Uh, That's like separate from the DNC platform that Jigger mentioned uh, the other week. But, you know, Biden said we have four things, the pandemic, the economy, racial injustice and climate change. And all of these four things are tied together. And everything he talked about included climate change. A lot of the speeches included climate change. A lot of the individual speakers, a lot of the folks on the roll call of the states included climate change. It was really a huge part of it. And it was framed not just in terms of our planet, but really about clean energy jobs. I have never heard clean energy and jobs linked so tightly and talked about so much before in any kind of convention. And they tried to do a couple of things here, both looking back and looking forward. So they invited some youth climate activists. Um, Alexandria Villasenor was one of them making the case for Biden. And obviously, a lot of the youth climate groups were not really behind Biden from the beginning. He was kind of the, one of their least favorite candidates. And also you had um, the the uh, actress Kerry Washington come out and talk about Biden's history trying to pass climate legislation back in 1986. So the case was made that like, hey, this is a guy who's been thinking about this issue since the 80s. And hey, he's embracing many of the concerns and demands of the 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 youth climate movement that's like genuinely existentially nervous about their future in the way that a lot of other adults are not. Jigger, what did you think? How much did you watch, and um, what what takeaways did you get from their messaging? Yeah, I watched uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So I guess days two, three, and four. And uh, I think day three was basically climate change day. And uh, you know, the thing that I found striking is just how many different ways they wanted to talk about it, right? Like you said, they want to talk about it from the youth side. They wanted to have Governor Newsom talk about it in front of, you know, these catastrophic wildfires. Um, You had Kamala Harris talk about it. You had Joe Biden talk about it. You had, by the way, that roll call was way better than the roll calls that are on the floor. I think they should do virtual roll calls forever. 
It was it was so much better. And did you see the Vermont roll call where Bernie was actually in the back of the Vermont roll call? I was pretty impressed by that. It, I mean, it was a great show. I think it surpassed everybody's expectations in, in that they understood that they needed to develop something completely different, and it felt like they pulled it off. So, you know, messaging aside, I thought that the execution was really effective. But the one, the one thing I, I would say that they didn't do, which I thought was wonderful, was they didn't do the U.S. cap approach from 2008, where it's like, here are all the large corporations, here's why we all want you know, a climate bill, here's how much money we're going to make doing it. Um, they actually really framed it through, you know, how much it's going to help people who are currently out of work, how how it's going to really reduce pollution, uh, which improves health impacts. Um, you know, I, I thought the framing of it was way better than the framing back in 2009. So if we think about 2009, uh, 2012, the um, we had these cycles where Democrats were really afraid of talking about climate as a crisis. You saw it from some leaders in the party, but really it was about the economics of clean energy, about stimulating the clean energy economy, all great stuff. But there was a major hesitation with talking about the climate change as a crisis. That dramatically changed. How how far has the party come in really tying it to people's lives in a real way, like pollution and job creation coming out and speaking about this in a much more urgent way. Yeah. And I would ask the question, it, how far has climate change come? I mean, climate change is in our faces. And given the wildfires and all of these other natural disasters, it's affecting everybody. And so it is a safe topic to talk about because we do have a crisis. And so, you know, as it has just trampled on, regardless of the politics, the, the politics has to kind of catch up. That point was made beautifully by our friend Leah Stokes in her piece in The Atlantic, right? I mean, just like how she planted a tree that was like perfect for the climate. Unfortunately, that was the climate 10 years ago and not today's climate. Catherine, Kamala Harris, uh, what kind of pick is she on the climate front? She has a surprisingly rich history on the environmental justice and climate change front. She was one of the last candidates to actually put out a climate plan but her history as a prosecutor would suggest that this is an important issue for her. So give us the totality of what Kamala Harris represents on this ticket. Yeah, sure. She was my number one choice. So I was really jazzed when she got it. And that's for a few reasons. One reason uh, has nothing to do with energy and climate. And it's just that um, she's a really decent human being and her staff love her. And when staff love the member that they work for, you know that they're that that they're in a good work environment, and I, that carries a lot of weight with me on, on picking like who's going to run the government. Um, and she does; she has a rich history. She's always been very progressive on a number of topics, but certainly, um, she confronted confronted the fossil fuel industry when she was attorney general. She opposed a Chevron refinery expansion. She created an environmental justice unit in her attorney general office. She joined other attorneys general on this United for Clean Power back in 2016. She's certainly opposed the Trump rollbacks. She worked with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on a Climate Equity Act um, across chambers to introduce that. And when she came out with her climate plan, it was like a $10 trillion plan over 10 years. So it was very forward thinking. It included a lot of really good details. And she will bring a lot to the ticket. I think um, I think they're absolutely in lockstep because, you know, so Biden has sort of the main tenets of what he wants to do and everything that she has brought in will, will fit 
fit very well within those and within those you know general goals that he has set forward. So I think it's a good pairing. I think it means we'll see some real action from that administration if they are elected. Seems like she's taking a stand on issues that Biden wasn't really willing to, which was eliminate the filibuster to pass something like a Green New Deal or some ambitious piece of climate legislation. And she also said that she would want to work with the Department of Justice to get them to investigate oil and gas companies for their role in covering up their contribution to climate change. And that, that I mean, that that seems different than what Biden was talking about in um, during his campaign. Yeah, she also voted against a nuclear innovation bill because it didn't include provisions for waste or tribal input, so indigenous people input. And so she's really been kind of out front and thinking about this and looks at things with, with some nuance. I think what it would mean in an administration is that all of these things that Biden has as his four pillars would be included in very much of a cross-agency, cross-government administration. So you would, of course, have EPA and Department of Energy, Transportation, those folks involved in talking about climate, but they would bring in labor and housing and health and human services and Department of Defense and make sure that throughout every agency, you're able to include this and as part of your mission. So, you know, DOD and State Department, too, I think is going to be really important. You know, every agency has a piece of what they can do relative to any particular topic. And this has happened, for example, in the Trump administration on critical materials. There was an executive order on critical materials, and then they have an interagency group. And I present one I presented with uh, with one of my clients to, to their group. And what was great is that every single agency is hearing a presentation about critical materials and taking forward what they can do on it within their own agency. And I could see them doing this very powerfully with with certainly with the pandemic, with the economy, uh, with racial injustice issues and with climate change. And I think Kamala Harris brings that to the table in a way that's going to be very intentional. Jigger, what do you think of Kamala? I love Kamala. She makes she makes a good muscle dosa with uh Mindy Kaling on that uh, video. Did you see that it went viral? No, I don't. Oh, it's pretty awesome. You, I think um, very frequently that? on this show you will reference clips that I've never seen. And I, <laughs> I don't. I don't, I'm I don't know how to respond. More trendy to them. than you millennials. He's so hip. Um, no, I look. I think that uh, look. Catherine's right. I, the one thing I would just caution is that look. I mean, it really is Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, and so I think part of this is that um, Joe Biden's put a lot of the environmental justice issues in his two trillion over four years plan. And so I think that he was already uh, putting some of those provisions in his plan before Kamala Harris was announced as the vice president. And um, not unlike Joe's role in the uh, Obama Biden White House, where he was sort of running the stimulus bill and making sure it was spent correctly, my sense is that Kamala will have a similar similar role, and um, you know, and and making sure that the environmental justice provisions are implemented um, is something that I think she's personally passionate about. But you know, I think that it's important. Like this is not like she gets to write half the plan and he gets to write half the plan. It's usually his plan, and you know, she's on board with that. And I think that's great. I think they generally are pretty close together in their thought process, anyway. Catherine, do you, do you feel like there's any clarity on priorities going forward under a potential Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, I think 
climate change is going to underpin just as those other three things will underpin everything. And certainly clean energy has a huge part to play because of all the job implications and also the ability to help all types of people. So yeah, I think it'll be a really big part of the administration. Now you also to get, you know, more durable solutions, you need to also make sure that Congress is involved and passes legislation that can support some of what you want to do in an administration. But we've seen already with the current administration, how much you can get done um, within the executive branch. Let's turn now to the climate donors. There are a set of climate donors who are contributing to the Biden campaign that are more cohesive, more focused on this specific issue and donating millions of dollars. According to a tally in the New York Times from the last week, they show that that climate-specific donors have put in about $15 million. I believe the Clean Energy for Biden group has raised, what, a million and a half dollars? Million, million and a half? I can't remember the exact number. Yeah, it's close to a million and a half. And... um, So let's think about what role these groups are playing in the campaign and then how that compares to the oil and gas companies that are also donating um, many, many, many millions of dollars to the Trump campaign. So, uh, Jigger, give us an accounting of who are the climate donors? What are they doing? How much more influence do they have this time around? Well, so the vast majority of the climate donors are not clean energy donors. The vast majority of climate donors are environmental donors, right? So this is League of Conservation Voters, Kathleen Welch, you know, some of these big players that are, you know, I think the number is actually closer to 30 million that they've collectively raised. And, um, and, and that's, I think that's where the traditional donor base comes from. I'd say that on the clean energy uh, side, there have been three or four groups that have raised money, Clean Energy Biden for Biden is one, and all of them have raised roughly the same, between a million and a half and, you know, $2 million each, um, which is great. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's, um, it does show you the relative power and the relative history of donating and donating bigger dollars. It largely comes from environmental donors. It comes less from clean energy donors. Yeah. And Trump, as in comparison, raised $10 million from the fossil fuel industry during one fundraiser. So, you know, there's there's a really big difference in, um, you know, in how some of the industries themselves are donating and trying to influence um, politics. Okay, so is this about what we're going to get? Or do you see any ramp up in spending on the environmental side or the clean energy side going into the final months of the campaign? I mean, Clean Energy for Biden is doing three fundraisers a week. So, I mean, it's, you know, we have state chapters doing fundraisers all the time. I did one for Georgia last week, and there's others that are, you know, coming in the next week. And so, like, I think that, um, you know, I think there'll be a lot of donations that come in over the next 70 days or so. I think that the bigger thing is just, you know, making sure that, as we said in a previous podcast, right, that our industry shows up. I mean, we're a huge industry now, right? We're investing two $250 billion a year, according to the advanced energy economy per year in the United States. Um you know, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, the PACs at Solar Energy Industry Association and the American Wind Energy Association have always been really thin, right? I mean, like, and it's one of those things that, um, you know, when while there's no quid pro quo, there can't be, um, it does matter that, you know, you're able to participate in these elected officials fundraisers. Um, it gets you to a higher priority level on their, you know, issues agenda. Catherine, um, I don't know if you can answer this question, but 
historically groups, you know, uh, renewable energy trade groups have donated a lot to Republicans because I think that there's a clear economic case that they can make. And there are lots of reasons why congressional Republicans would rally behind their messaging, you know, as you live this every day. Um, is this moment different in any way? Like, will we see a shift from some of those industry groups that are a little bit more shrewd in how they make those donations? Like, we're, we're dealing with an administration that is clearly extraordinarily hostile to renewable energy. I mean, there's just like, there's there's no way else to read into this. So does that change the calculus that a lot of these groups that have been historically very bipartisan operate? That's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing I would note is that a lot of former members of Congress who are Republicans and who are now lobbyists have declared that they're voting for Biden. And those folks do a lot of fundraising. So I imagine that, you know, the the K Street lobbying folks, and to be clear, I'm I am a registered lobbyist. <laughs> My office is not on K Street, but <laughs> regardless, um, I don't do I mean, Biden won't take money from me. So I can't donate to the campaign. I could donate to a PAC, but I can't donate to the campaign. And um a lot of those lobbyists do fundraising. I do not do a lot of PAC work. That's not to say I shouldn't or wouldn't, but I'm just saying that's just not, I mostly do like policy, expert policy stuff. And, um, but a lot of these folks are big fundraisers. And I think the lobbyists have found that it is really difficult right now to understand where the administration is going, in what direction they're going to go in, in, in a number of topics. And so it's not just whether it's fossil fuel or not fossil fuel. Some of it is just about certainty. And yeah, you can open up the Alaska wilderness and you still don't know if you're going to, if you should invest in drilling there because the next administration is going to pull the plug on it. So I think that it's going to be interesting to see how all of those players participate in this. So there's the whole piece on corporates and PACs, but there's also all these individuals. A lot of individuals have gotten used to giving small amounts of money. And certainly Bernie Sanders raised a ton of money from small donations from individuals. So I actually think it's going to be a combination of all of those. And, and underlying all of this is that no matter how much money you raise, you have to be able to vote. And so I think a big piece of all of this is trying to have a plan for where are you going to vote? How are you going to vote? How do you make sure that you get your vote in in time if you're mailing it or if you're doing it absentee or if you're doing it in person, like having a plan for that? That's really important, no matter who you're voting for. Um, so I think there's a combination of factors here. Hmm. I don't know how all you are feeling going into these last months of the campaign, but my general anxieties and dread have shifted from the pandemic now into election politics. So I'm, I'm kind of transitioning the amount of anxiety I have to this next issue. How are you all feeling going into this last stretch of the election? I think doing a lot, you know, makes me feel less anxious. Right. I mean, you know, there's obviously there's always things that people could do better and whatnot. But I mean, even when you look at the Senate races, I think, you know, I think clean energy champions are doing well on the Senate side, too. So um, in a lot of their close races. So, you know, I feel I feel hopeful and I feel pretty positive that clean energy for at least is playing a bigger role today than it did, you know, in 2008 or even in 2016. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, of course, anxious about how it's all going to work out. I just want everything to go okay and people to be able to vote who they want to vote for. Like, that's so, so important for our democracy. 
Um, and from where I sit, you know, I help all these companies and organizations that um, are going to need to get business done and need to grow their business and need to have policy to do so no matter who is the president, no matter who runs Congress. And so, you know, my business partner and I are always trying to game theory out like, well, what do we do if this happens or what do we do if that happens? And we have to have a plan for for all of that because we have to still move forward and we still have to help clean energy no matter what. Well, before we transition to the next topic, let's just have a quick word about our sponsors. So, Jigger, question for you. Are you ready for the era of energy storage? Oh, yeah. I got one in my basement. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You do. Uh, well, Fluence, our sponsor, certainly is. Fluence has been working for 12 years to expand the energy storage sector because storage helps deployment of renewables, it helps the grid reach critical emissions targets, it delivers cost-effective grid services, and Fluence is a trusted partner for uh, organizations and developers across the world on their energy storage projects. They have a fully integrated sixth-generation technology stack now that combines modular factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence that helps them scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to your specific use case and application. So you can find out more at fluenceenergy.com. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. Every NorCal Controls project begins with a simple question. What approach best serves the customer? Now, NorCal Controls offers turnkey DOS and SCADA solutions based on open architecture. And that eliminates the need for restrictive service contracts and ongoing fees. Uh, and that makes their systems designed to be easy to maintain, test, and troubleshoot. As the only system integrator in solar PV that comes from a traditional power generation background, NorCal has earned a reputation as the strongest in controls. So if you want to hear more about the strongest in controls, go to norcalcontrols.net. Let's move to a story that shows us in a very specific way why the election is so critical. It's an investigative piece from Peter Farrelly at Investigate West that dropped last week, and it involves a piece of research at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory that was suppressed by the Trump administration in 2018. And it's still unclear what is going to happen to this research. It modeled how to connect eastern and western power grids to better manage lots of renewable energy. The research itself was important. It was part of many grid integration studies that NREL has been working on, but it's not earth shattering. Um, however, the Trump administration saw it as an imminent threat to its promise to save the coal industry. And when they found out about it, they scrambled to censor the work. And so we're going to talk a bit about the study, but also what's going on inside the Trump administration to stifle, censor, push aside important research like this. So let's talk about what happened. Um, Catherine, what is the SEAMS study? Start us off, square one. Yeah, yeah. So the SEAMS study is an interconnection study, as you said, that tries to show, you know, what would happen if you had a Western and Eastern interconnection and also ERCOT, which is the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas. Like, what would what would you be able to do with that? And the, the interesting thing about the study is that the approach was not based on what would happen if we went for 30% wind and 20% solar, where you pick numbers, arbitrary numbers, and try to figure out what to do. Instead, what the study said is, 
what if you had a carbon regime? So say you had, you know, base case, what's happening now versus carbon regime, and you had interconnection. What would you need on the grid and where those resources coming from? And they just they found that you could make an economic case and an incredibly compelling economic case for solar, wind and hydro if you had interconnections. And some of this is with, you know, high voltage direct current, but overlay. But a lot of this is just about connecting these two these two parts of the grid going east and west and also with Texas and um so the, the study itself was important in the way that they had set it up as let's look at this from, you know, if we have a car, a transition where the the methodology is based on carbon reduction, what would you need? And, and then figure out what those resources might be. So that was part, and that was a scope that was approved by Department of Energy for NREL to do. And they had a couple million dollars to work on it. And that's what that's what they proceeded to do. It was a very technical study. It was to be presented. Um, it was an IEEE paper, so it was very much about peer reviewing and taking input from other scientists and other organizations to really make sure that their methodology was correct. And it was really meant to be very much of a technical study. And because of the politics, it has not been published. Yeah. Okay. So this does not seem very political. There's a lot of research swirling around. What happened next? Why did it become political? Yeah, so I talked to Aaron Bloom, who was the project manager at NREL at that time for the SEAM study. And he said, so he wasn't able to go to this conference to present. So we had uh, one of his staffers, um, Josh Novacek, was asked to sub in. And he was a really smart guy. So he knew everything about the study to present. And not five minutes into the presentation, the deputy assistant secretary at Department of Energy, who was listening in, Katie Jeriza, sent an email and said, this guy is advocating for carbon policy, which was not what he was doing. He was they were basically saying, you know, if you did this, this is what you would get. Just kind of backing into it a little bit differently. And so then NREL had to go back and change the titles. So they had to change from calling it current policy versus carbon policy to say base case versus high variable generation case. And they had to change a bunch of things. But in the meantime, it really, really decimated the way the scientists were thinking about doing this and how do we make sure it's peer reviewed in a way that that maintains the efficacy of our research and our modeling tools, which are very, very sophisticated. So there, there are kind of three different aspects. One is like the political aspect, um, which was about carbon policy and about the, the administration shutting it down. And it wasn't just um, Katie um, Dreza, it was also Kathy Tripodi and some other folks at DOE that decided to shut this down. And remember, the lab director has to report to the Department of Energy. So there's the political piece. There is the issue about scientists not feeling that they're supported. And Aaron Bloom left NREL because he did not feel like he was being backed up in research, really important research that he was doing. And then the third thing is the report and like, is it ever going to see the light of day? And I would just say on the political front, um, that I was I was at NREL for seven years. I straddled both the Clinton and the George W. Bush administrations. Um, partly, I, the first part, I was in the research side and in buildings. And the second part, I was manager of government relations. And I was always trying to f- walk this line about making sure that we were complying with whatever the goals of the given administration were. So W had a lot of things that he was squashing too. So I just say, this is not 
unusual that when a new administration, when especially a Republican administration comes in and decides they do not like the outcome of what a national lab is doing, and in particular NREL, which is renewable energy, that they would squash some things or hide them. And there were reports that came out in 2007 that NREL scientists had to do on their volunteer time and that Sierra Club promoted, but were not done through NREL because at that point, the Bush administration said, we are not going to support this anymore. So that is always an issue when you have national labs that are in essence, dictated by the goals of the administ- any given min- administration. So that causes an issue. But then you have the issue of scientists and like losing really good people like Aaron um, because of something like this happening. And then the third thing is just losing the paper. And, you know, this this would have been another really interesting study to have out there. Now, bits it's still alive on YouTube. You can find presentations on the paper. Um, but it hasn't been published in IEEE and some of these papers that are, you know, publications that would have been really helpful to have it in. Uh, Jigger, what do you think the stakes are here? I mean, there's been a lot of grid integration studies looking at how you can better manage a lot of renewables on the grid. This is one of a major body of research. Um, how much do we read into this particular suppression of this report, given what Catherine outlined in the historical context, like this does happen within administrations, but also like the Trump administration has gone to much greater lengths to suppress any discussion about climate change. And we can go through some of those. I mean, it's a crazy long list. But where do you think this fits in? Yeah, I mean, you know, state representative Tom Sloan actually organized the event and, you know, is Republican and, you know, he was emailing back and forth saying, you know, you guys are overreacting. This is, you know, just an exchange of ideas. And so, uh, you know, I... I hate to see this stuff, right? Because I do think that the folks who worked on it were just, you know, their heart was in the right place. They were, you know, just doing real research like you're supposed to do. But I do think that, you know, fundamentally, as Catherine suggested, right? I mean, you know, NREL is a institution that's run by a private contractor, right? And they get these awards. And if they don't follow what the politicals say, then, you know, there are repercussions to doing that, right? And I think, you know, there is some... um you know, sort of uh, logic to how NREL responded to the bullying of uh, the Trump administration. I think at the same time, um, I thought that the initial website link uh, to the Atlantic article, which is called How Trump Appointees Short-Circuited Grid Modernization, was, you know, like completely over the top, right? I mean, we've been working on grid modernization for 20 years. The Obama administration did very little on grid modernization, as we talked about with Russell Gold's book and Superpower. So it's not like we're, you know, like the the Trump administration killed grid modernization. They killed one paper, which talked about another theoretical way to make grids more modern, um, in the same way that we've been talking about building a transmission line from you know, the deserts of Nevada and Arizona to New York City, right, for a long time, so that the solar power could, like, you know, power New York City. Um, and so, you know, so I I generally don't get too outraged over these things because I feel like I would just be in a constant state of outrage. Yeah, I get disappointed, though. I will say um, when I see institutions that are regularly cited for their research or for their analysis and data, and I would say Energy Information Administration is cited all the time. And a lot of what they end up doing certainly has not been complete. We've been fighting with them through many administrations, too, I might add. Um, But 
you know, you want all of the stuff that comes out that's been funded to to really um, hold water and be cited internationally. I mean, NREL is held up as as a jewel of the United States and and a real um, you know a real hub of innovation and really really smart scientists. When I applied to get a job at NREL, I had to be interviewed by twelve scientists and. I ended up talking about utility rate structures because I knew they wouldn't understand what I was talking about because otherwise <laughs> I don't know if I would have gotten a job there. I mean, it is really, it's really high stakes to work for these uh, labs and they are some of the best and brightest in the world. And you just hate to see them um, being somehow stymied by politics. Oh, I totally agree with you. Oh yeah. This is, this is the most disappointing piece of this story, and that is, you you have really prominent, very intelligent uh, researchers who are pushed out of government. They feel like they need to leave, uh, and this is what has been happening over the last four years. Um, you know, and this, the administration has gone to great lengths to censor climate change and clean energy research. I mean, it, it of course scrubbed mentions of climate on websites. Uh, early on, when the administration was coming in, political appointees t- created a list of folks within DOE and other agencies who'd gone to climate conferences, and presumably to punish them. Uh, you have seen this is not just the only study that it's been delayed. There have been multiple studies that have been uh, suppressed or delayed. Um, and so what happens is this this is textbook stuff of how you dismantle government agencies that are preparing for the biggest problems in the world and delaying this research, which could have direct consequences for you know actions the government or private developers take in the coming years. And so it is a shame to see really intelligent people working on these projects get pushed out of government uh, for this reason. That, to me, is this piece of the story that really stands out most beyond the specific study itself. Yeah, and it's happening across the government to the point where, you know, if we have a change in administration, people are worried that there are actually aren't enough people in uh, government um, who have the experience and track record to be able to implement new programs. Um, you'd have to backfill a lot of those jobs, which take time. And so, look, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's disheartening for sure. And I'm completely disappointed. I just think that, I, I just think that we continue to, you know, sort of be surprised by, you know, how low the Trump administration can stoop and, you know, there's no, there's no lower bound to how far they could go on this. But I, but I do think that I expect the same level of outrage when, you know, Democrats do the same thing on other really important issues, right? I mean, the fact that we have, I just got corrected from the last Energy Gang podcast, we have 5,000 megawatts of demand response that the state of California could have done if it matched the policies of ERCOT, and it would have saved all those people from being blacked out. And the state of California just has this extraordinary hatred for demand response, which I don't understand, but they should be called to task for the fact that like they have systematically destroyed demand response in the state of California. Who corrected you, Catherine? No, it was actually uh, <laughs> it was actually one of the uh, thermostat vendors who you know showed how they had three thousand megawatts alone of, um, of of DR capacity that they've been piloting, um, but you know they're not allowed to to use. Yeah, but I've been fighting those fights for a long time, and it is it's rough. <laughs> well, let's take the last fifteen minutes here to talk through some listener questions. 
Um, we put out the call on Twitter and on our platform here for uh, things that you wanted us to talk about. And we got a ton of questions about tech, uh, actually technologies, you know, non-conventional technologies that we don't discuss as much on this podcast. You know, we, we're, we're pretty focused on the stuff that's happening today, which tends to be wind, solar, batteries, hydro. Um, but let's get through some of these, some of which are very novel. So the first question... Um, oh, I didn't copy their name into the uh, document here, so I apologize for not having this person's name. But they ask about two technologies. One is, is tidal energy finally reaching maturity? Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of investment in wave and tidal energy in the 2006 to 2009 time frame. A lot of it fell apart after the financial crisis and, you know, nobody ever really picked it back up. There's been some experimentation. So, uh, Jigger, what do you think? Where are we at with wave and tidal energy? Is anything interesting happening that would lead you to believe that something's on the verge of being commercially competitive? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't. And why? Well, I mean, to me, the definition of you know, success is materiality, right? They've got to be able to reach 1%. I don't need them to be at 10%, 20%, 40% of the grid. But if they could be 1% of the grid, then they're material. And there's actually no pathway by which they can get to 1%. And so, so you know, I don't, I, you know, I think that their costs have continued to come down, which is great. They're not really cost effective without subsidies. They're probably at, you know, close to 20, 25 cents a kilowatt hour. But like, but it's just one of those things where, um, you know, I wish them the best and I hope people continue to get R&D money and a couple of pilot projects and development projects, but I just don't see it being a core solution. Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, it's funny because I was listening to my friend Gerard Reed, uh, whose podcast Redefining Energy, they did like a looking forward trends thing at the beginning of the year. And and he was really bullish on wave and tidal. And he, and he, and he said, well, remember how we didn't believe in offshore wind and uh, now, you know, we have it. It's, it you know, it's a, it's a huge deal. He said, I feel like that about wave and tidal, but we've been working on it a long time for it not to actually come to reality. But I would say I did read a piece about India and how because of their spring um, tide difference in like being 10 meters that that India is looking at some some applications for tidal. Yeah, the Canadians are doing a lot in the Bay of Fundy. Um, you know, New York City's done a lot in the Hudson. Hawaii's done a lot with OTEC. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of great places to do it. I just, you know, like, I think they could be hugely successful financially and never hit 1%. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I feel like when there was this surge of investment and interest, it was when offshore wind hadn't been proven to be the behemoth that it is today. And so you had a lot of folks in that community making the argument that you just explained, uh, Catherine, which was, we're following the pathway of the nascent offshore wind industry. And well, that has not happened. And offshore wind became incredibly competitive, is continuing to become more competitive. The technology the, uh, has scaled considerably and the engineering has gotten way better. So I just, I find it hard to imagine a world in which offshore wind is doing so well. There are so many uh, great places to put offshore wind farms and, and and wave and tidal just haven't caught up in terms of performance and economics. And I, and I say this every time someone asks me, I said, you know, putting these devices uh, in some of the strongest currents or in some of the 
the biggest waves in the world is, you know, a recipe for your technology to fall apart. And that is definitely what has happened for most of these technologies. It is a brutal, brutal environment. Someone sent me a note after our discussion about the Shell uh, offshore wind project and the floating solar. And they said that, you know, the rule of thumb when working in the ocean is five times higher for the CapEx to be able to handle the brutality of the ocean. Interesting. So this person also asked about waste plastic pellets instead of coal in coal-fired power stations. I know that that there is at least one coal-fired power station in the UK that is experimenting with this. I'm not really sure what's happening in the US, but basically it's just like non-recyclable waste turned into pellets and burned in a coal plant. Uh, Jigger, viability here? Yeah, I mean, the numbers work and it's super profitable. It's called um, material, uh, what's it called? Anyway, we've looked at like four or five deals in this space. And and it's not plastic only. It's like, there's lots of stuff like weird shaped cardboard and all sorts of things. And they basically have this machine that's co-located at a waste management sort of material reprocessing facility. And they divert this stuff, they they tumble it, they turn it into pellets, and it's it's got a BTU content that's higher than met coal. And you can co-fire it in steel production, cement production, uh, coal plants. You can you know co-fire it in lots of places. Um, and it really works. I mean, the problem, honestly, with it is that the steel plants and the coal plants and the cement plants can't be bothered to sign a contract to buy it. And so you're a completely merchant, right? You basically build this thing and then you create a bunch of pellets and you hope somebody's going to buy it, but you can't get contracts to sell it to anybody. Well, given the conversation we had last week about the uh, increasing alarming data on public health, one would think that the emissions picture doesn't look too good for burning plastic pellets in a coal plant. So it seems to me that we should be reducing plastics and finding, you know, finding new ways to replace plastics and cutting demand rather than just deciding that we're going to burn them in a coal plant. Um, it, I don't, I don't know what the emissions profile looks like, but <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunately the, uh, you know, glass ridiculously full point of view. Like in general, we use more plastic every year than we ever have with plastic bands and everything else. With everyone working from home under COVID, they're using saran wrap like that's nobody's business. And, you know, like it's just one of those things where every time someone says to me, hey, why don't you use this like reusable sandwich like container made out of like, you know, durable plastic and you can wash it in the dishwasher. I'm like, here's 73 other people that just started using more plastic uh, for sanitation purposes under COVID. And it's just, it's one of those things where we will continue to use more plastic every day until the government mandates that we don't use plastic, right? And um, and until that time, we're going to have to figure out what to do with plastic because plastic is recycled at rates of like 8% to 18% you know, recyclable rates. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. Let's go to advanced nuclear. Uh, MC Hammond asks, why is everyone so down on nuclear? Um, some of the next generation reactors are shooting for, you know, the mid 2020s looking at, um, $2,000 a kilowatt hour, um, for, uh, for projects. And she's just wondering uh, given the projections we're seeing from some of the companies and government organizations developing small modular reactors, different kinds of advanced reactors, why is everyone so down on the industry? Uh, Catherine, w- any takes here? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the problem has been that uh, it's been hard to get new technology started. So the best hope is new scale in Oregon, and they just had to push their project out. So it'll probably be 2030 before they have these 12 individual um, 60 megawatt reactors installed. And the price could be prohibitive in the end anyway, with this Utah Association of Municipal Power Systems that will be buying that power. And they want to make sure they keep that customer, uh, that group of customers uh, viable. I mean, I think the issue has been just trying to make sure that there's new technology and that you're able to scale it and that it's, it's just really hard to compete right now with the cost of renewables. Yeah. And so you've seen the cost double for the new scale uh, project and some of the partners, a couple of the partners recently uh, left that. They were replaced. They were replaced. By a few others. Oh, yeah. so they actually got, okay. They, they got people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's UAMPS that basically signed up to it, which is the Utah sort of municipality co-op. And, you know, two of the cities dropped out and two more took their spot. So I don't think it's a big deal. But like, I mean, Oklo is much farther along. So like New Scale UAMPS hasn't actually submitted anything to the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, for official approval of the site, where Oklo has actually officially submitted their application. Um, and so they're farther along. I'm I'm hugely bullish on advanced nuclear. Look, I think, I think for those people who think nuclear is not going to be around in the future, I think they haven't really studied the issue well. Like nuclear is going to be around in the future. I think the AP-1000 won't be around, uh, but um, which is the, you know, the technology that's being used for VOTAL. But there will, and there's going to be a lot of folks who come in, a lot of people who go bankrupt, and it's going to be, a, you know, a, a lot of changes. But you see a, a huge amount of deployment of nuclear in China uh, and South Korea and other places. And so um, I do think advanced nuclear as you know, is here to stay. It's just uh, not going to be settled as to who wins or loses until, you know, 2025 or so. Yeah, certainly not bullish on the immediate time frame or the economics, but I am all for throwing a ton of R&D money in. I mean, I think we should absolutely ramp up investments in helping some of these companies succeed. So I am bullish on the investment opportunity in terms of helping these companies like work through the valley of death, but uh, certainly not bullish on delivering on time, uh, given what they've claimed. Um, let's go to non-wires alternatives. So many years ago, maybe eight years ago, we started hearing this term non-wires alternatives, which is, of course, the, the use of distributed energy technologies to make up for um, massive upgrades to substations, dis the distribution system. Um, and it was a cheaper way to make the grid, the, the distribution grid, more resilient. Now, a lot of this was coming out of New York, but we've seen you know implementation around the country, but we haven't heard a lot about it, at least for those of us who are not like with our heads in requests for proposals. So Catherine, this seems like an area you've covered uh, extensively. What's up with non-wires alternatives? Yes, head in request for proposals. Yeah, so I mean, the classic example was this Brooklyn Queens demand management program where they avoided a substation build out of $1.2 billion by using demand response efficiency and distributed generation. So that was kind of the, the, the one that got it all kicked off and started. And at the end of last year, um, Guidehouse Insights, which used to be called Navigant, um, said that the non-wireless alternative market was going to grow about 20% a year and be $333 million, but, uh, million dollars a year by 2028, which is pretty interesting. I 
I think it could grow even more. It very much depends on regulation. But a couple of examples like Pepco just August 17th issued a request for information um, due in September for non-wireless alternatives. Virginia in all of their energy legislation requires that you look at non-wireless alternatives before you build anything that is not 100% clean. So, I mean, it's it's starting to percolate. I'm involved in a lot of state proceedings. The issue, and, and the best argument, of course, is resilience. The argument is also about customer choice and customers actually being able to save money. Um, the trick is in all these regulatory um, proceedings, like the utilities have a certain way of doing things that involves the supply side and you know capital equipment expansion rather than looking at non-wireless alternatives. So it has to be done very intentionally and make sure that it is included in any, you know, if it's an integrated resource plan or whatever the state proceeding is, we want to make sure that it's part of it so that they at least consider those um, those resources on the edge of the grid as part of the full system. So it's so it's still a thing? Is it going to expand? <laughs> oh, <No>? yes. <laughs> it's still a thing. I, I filed last week about non-wireless alternatives. It is absolutely still a thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, this is another place where it's going to continue to go slow as utilities fight it tooth and nail. And then at some point, the regulators are going to say, wow, we could save 90% by doing it a different way. Wow, we should do that. And then it'll, you know, happen all at once. It's just, you know, frustrating, but. So Jim Sandercook asks, how do we monetize the heat from geothermal power plants? Um, obviously, you know, you use the heat to run a, run a turbine, generate electricity. But what about other uses of the heat? Chigger, how do you structure contracts and what do you use that heat for other than electricity? Nothing. Really? So there's no, like here in the U.S. or everywhere? Ah, there's always exceptions to the rule, right? You have low-grade heat. You know, everyone's been trying to say that we have the, um, you know, holy ground, low-grade heat. In some in some cases, for instance, a lot of the geothermal plants in the Salton Sea have tons of lithium in it. And this is the sort of mineral stuff. Um, you could imagine some of that low-grade heat being used in the minerals extraction process. Um, some of them are closer to population centers, so you could imagine using some of that heat into, you know, some sort of like district heating and cooling system. Um, but it's not cheap, right? It's not cheap to go and capture that heat and put all a bunch of hardware in there to do it. And there aren't a lot of great contract structures by which to get paid for that heat. Um, and so it's just one of those things where, it's it's just a great idea. It's just like, God, you know, we have all this low-grade heat. We should do something with it. And then when you actually get to the bottom of it, you're sort of like, uh, sort of maybe a 10% return, but I have to put a bunch of the stuff in and I'm taking a lot more risk. And, you know, is it really one of my top five priorities? Yeah, Eon is doing this in Bavaria where they're building a one megawatt and they're hoping to get it up to six megawatt using the waste heat for electricity. I remember traveling around the Netherlands and... Um, seeing examples of using the waste heat from yep. a geothermal plant and a waste heat from a coal plant to uh, help run their tulip farms and run some like, uh, what, what do you call the places where you raise fish? I'm forgetting the word now. A- aquaculture. An aquaculture, But no, yeah. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of folks <laughs> yeah. doing that. There's a lot of, um, in the West, there's a lot of groups that are looking to co-locate controlled agriculture to grow tomatoes and lettuce next to geothermal facilities to use the waste heat. But it's not a lot of money, right? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, if you're really utilizing the waste heat, you're talking about like a million dollars a year, like co-locating a 
the greenhouse there is like a hundred thousand dollars a year, fifty thousand dollars a year of value. So it's just one of those things where um, people are going to keep trying, but I don't, I don't see it becoming a billion dollar business. All right, we're going to wrap up here. Give some free electrons before we end the show. Catherine, what's your free electron? Now, don't tell me you have like five or six because you've just been like accumulating them over the last three weeks. I have two, but they're quick. Okay. That's <laughs> okay. <fine. laughs> One is that um, Energy Innovation uh, just released a fully competitive wholesale electricity market in seven southeastern states. So it's like Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee. And they found there would be from 2025, that's when you could set it up in time, like a PJM, an ISO, but in the Southeast. By 2040, $384 billion in cumulative economic savings, an additional doubling, 285,000 jobs, 40% fewer CO2 um, emissions, and then 62 gigawatts of solar, 40 gigawatts of wind, 46 of energy storage. I mean, Big, big thing. So go to energyinnovation.org. Take a look at that report. Super interesting. My second free electron is right before we started taping the Senate Democratic Special Committee on the Climate Crisis that's different from the Select Committee of the Climate Crisis in the House, which was bipartisan. This was not. It was just the Senate Democrats just released their climate plan. They took a bunch of stakeholder input over the summer and they released it 100% net um, zero by 2050 increase in federal s- spending, which would be like 2% of GDP a year on climate action. That's what they promote with 40% of that going to communities of color and disadvantaged communities and creating 10 million jobs. So take a look at that. It's the Senate Democrats climate plan. Excellent. Lots of additional reading there. Jigger, <laughs> what do you got? So our good friend, uh, Ben Storo over at E&E News uh, just has a killer piece out called Big Oil Meet Big Green. It starts with, you know, Exxon being taken out of the Dow uh, for the first time since 1928, um, which is awesome. Um, But it also talks about super majors, and it basically talks about how researchers at Imperial College in London has recently concluded that renewable energy companies have delivered far better returns than their oil competitors over the last 10 years, um, and their shares were subject to far less price volatility Um, and it just, it, there's just like all this great data about how, um, while oil and gas continue to have more total CapEx every year, which about $756 billion a year, um, that, you know, to solve the worst, to, you know, to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, we're going to have to shift almost all of that money to, uh, green investments and that we're sort of, you know, on track to doing that now. And so just a great piece and, you know, Ben's always got great stuff, but this one's particularly good. So I was reading a piece about hyperpolarization and, you know, the hyperpolarization now has just kind of turned into mass delusion. Uh, And the New York Times had this piece looking at um, online research from SurveyMonkey and the New York Times um, asking people how they felt about the economy. And um, eight in 10 Republicans who lost their jobs in the recession who have not yet returned to work approve of Mr. Trump's handling of the pandemic and nearly three in 10 Republicans who lost jobs say they're better off economically than they were a year ago. Um, And so, look, I'm not going to pretend to understand what's going on in the minds of each of these individuals, but like clearly, historically, um, people's beliefs and understanding of the performance of the presidency has been directly tied to um, their how things are going for them economically. And like that is not the case. And that is clearly showing how 
uh, hypercharged our polarization is. And it just, you know, it, it once again proves to me that we should not be setting like we should not be starting from a place where we're trying to convince everyone on a issue like climate change. I mean, clearly in the poll I referenced at the beginning of the show from Resources for the Future, a lot more Americans are putting climate change at the top of their um, priority list. Many of them on are on the left side of the aisle, but like that number has increased dramatically. Um, but if you start from where Democrats have started in like the 2000, uh, the 2008 election cycle, the 2012 election cycle, where they're trying to hem and haw and not talk about the crisis, like it's very clear that like you should have a full throated argument for how you're going to transition the economy and how we're going to solve this crisis immediately. And I was always one of those people who believe that like you need to spread the message as far and wide as possible and probably water it down to make it digestible. I don't believe that anymore. And I think that this kind of polling shows that like there's going to be a bunch of people who just don't believe in it anyway. So you have to go in with the most um, confidence inducing argument possible and really address the problem in, in the way it needs to be addressed. There's a great piece on this um, that basically calls like Rahm Emanuel a reactionary centrist when he said that we shouldn't be pursuing a Green New Deal because we can still get these people um, to come to our side. And um, and it's just a great piece in Medium um, about this that you know everyone should read from Aaron Huertas. Um, it's just like, I totally agree with you. Like, I mean, it's a lost cause to try to get some of these folks, you know, sort of to to get on the other side. But then once you put your climate policies in place, you engage them and get those people to be part of your groups 100%. that help you decide what their future what their future should look like. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I've really adapted my thinking on this over the last uh, couple of years. Well, we're going to call it at that. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, we appreciate it. Catherine Hamilton, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for the Muppets behind you. A nice <laughs> treat as I've been watching you. Jigger, good to see you. Great to see you guys. Thank you to Caroline Thompson, who helped organize this. Big thanks to our senior editor, Ingrid Lobet, who is lurking in the background uh, and who makes the makes us all sound better and, and helps the, pro- the, the podcast run. Uh, Sean Marquand mixes the show. And we are a co-production of PostScript Audio and Green Tech Media. Plenty more great content to come. So I, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, you can get us anywhere you get podcasts. And if you want to send us any messages or uh, tweets to see if uh, we'll cover issues that you want us to cover, just hit us up on Twitter. We're all there. Uh, and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you can. That is super helpful, as I always say every week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a great day. We really appreciate the time that all of the folks who are here watching us took to uh, to be here with us. And we will catch you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>